0: Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Fabian Mirojan beat Carlos Alcaraz in Rome. I'm still trying to figure out kind of what to do with these two-week masters because obviously there's no final to break down on Monday. Well, woke up this morning to that, and it made things pretty simple. I did want to enlist some help this time, so I hit up my friend and colleague Paul Anacone. Who, as I said in the before the interview, needs no introduction. But if I may, former coach of Pete Sampras, former coach of Roger Federer, current coach of Taylor Fritz, and analyst for Tennis Channel. Uh, he called the match, so I wanted to get him on. Unfortunately, uh, he kindly squeezed me in. He did not have a lot of time, but I said, no problem. Let's do it anyway. And we do it. So, uh, short discussion with Paul Anacone just before we get there the first thing I ask him is about contextualizing this upset and I want to do a little bit of that first this was not a slam so it's not going to be the most consequential upset in the history of tennis those upsets will always be reserved for favorites at majors always Uh, but In terms of a surprise scale, like how shocking was this on the upset scale? I think it would be difficult to go overboard in characterizing that. I don't think it's easy to be hyperbolic. If you want to say that this is one of the biggest upsets of the decade, of the century, I don't know how I can really argue with you now. I'm cautious that way because I know what the limitations of my memory is, especially since the intensity at which I've started covering the sport uh, does not date back, you know, way, 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 way back. Uh, It's a relatively recent thing, last five years or so, right? So I don't trust my memory enough to go to the century thing. but. Last like five years, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on everything that's happened week in, week out on the tour. And I don't know that there has been an upset to this level. Again, surprise scale. And of course, you have two factors here. You have the upset t, Who has been upset? Okay. And who has been upset is a guy who's about to be number one in the world, number two in the world by five points this week. On a 13 match win streak with a record of 30 and 2 on the year, who hadn't lost a single match in straight sets, who hadn't lost before a semifinal. And then we have the upsetter, the guy doing the upset. Okay. So the upset T was pretty much at the highest level you can be, like tier one, as good as someone who's in great form, who's the best, if not. Among the two or three best in the world. Okay? The upsetter, Who's that guy? Okay? Didn't have a top 100 victory before the week. Not even on the challengers. Never beat a top 100 player. Didn't have a tour level victory before the week. And I really, really respect the level of challenger tennis. You guys know that. So if somebody is tearing it up on the challenger tour or something like that. I'm never surprised if they go to tour level and they have good results. Morojan won a challenger title in Antalya in March, so it's not like he hadn't done anything at challenger level, but his April was not good. So he was coming off of a bad month, doesn't have a great, overwhelmingly you know, great record, even at the challenger level on the season. So that's the upset If you take, if you look at the upset-tee and the upset and you look at how how far apart they are, what their situations are. It's really hard to find a bigger upset than this. It just is. Now I, I think about the big three and you know upsets that come to mind with them. Just shuffling it around in my head. Istomin, Djokovic, Australian Open 2017, and then two at Wimbledon in 2013, Stakovsky over Federer. Stakovsky was outside of the top 100, and Steve Darcy over Nadal. At that same Wimbledon, those were both massive. But Dennis Istomin, Sergey Stekovsky and even Steve Darcy—only a little bit less so with Darcy than the other two—we knew who they were. They they had a resume, a tour resume. Obviously, those were more important because it was a slam. But were they more surprising? I don't know. A uh, couple of recent ones: Schwartzman lost to the number 63 ranked junior in Davis Cup 2 years ago. That that was wild. Nobody watched it. Nobody nobody saw that match. But certainly we heard about it after it happened because you look at the result and it was just wow. It, I mean it doesn't get much more shocking than that. But Schwartzman certainly is an Alcaraz. Von Richten last year, her Togenbosch, That was pretty that was a pretty awesome run. And he beats Medvedev in the final. So that was Monday Match Analysis upset of the year last year. I'll be damned if something beats this out for Monday Match Analysis upset of the year this year. Here's Paul Anacone. Joined now by Paul Anacone, a man who needs no introduction, and uh, was on the call for Tennis Channel in Fabian Morozan's upset of Carlos Alcaraz, which, Paul, you actually called before the match, right? Oh, yeah, did this. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> me, me and me and so many others.
0: <laughs> uh, I mean, let's try to contextualize this first. Have you fumbled around in your head like how big an upset this is in terms of the most surprising results that we've seen? And I don't know how far you want to go back a decade, 30 years. Does does it sound hyperbolic to you to say that this is as big an upset we've seen?
1: Well, look, it's you know. When you have someone that's a superstar um, like Alcaraz playing someone that has never won a match in a main draw at a tour level before this week, obviously, it's shocking, you know, and, and I think that uh, it's always difficult for me to kind of quantify and compare stuff um Because I think as time changes, so do situations. But you can absolutely make that argument. And and it's a great discussion. I think the more interesting thing is also to think about just how good this kid played and the fact that he's outside the top 100 and that he hasn't won a main draw match to this week. So after calling that match and seeing it, it's a bit of a head scratcher why he hasn't won matches on the tour. You know, when he beat Lehechka in the second round, I definitely thought this kid's pretty, pretty damn good. Um, I didn't expect him to go out and do what he did today. Cause really he played uh, an astonishing match. I didn't even think um, Carlitos played that badly. He really didn't. He almost fought his way back in, in the second set. Um, but this guy did a great job of playing offensive tennis and, and, you know the question always is and i said it on air is like what's going to happen in the big moments this, you know this guy's never been here before and he didn't flinch you know down 4-1 the tie break in the second set and you know he wins six points in succession uh, you know it's just amazing to think that someone could play at that level in that moment that hasn't been there before so something pretty special look that's gil you know, that's one of the reasons why we all love sports so much too stuff like that happens once in a while
0: hundred percent. Nothing better than, than stories like this. What was he doing on the court? You mentioned his offense that was bothering Carlitos more than anything else.
1: It was interesting to watch. Cause I, you know, I had seen him play a bit in the past and I watched some stuff before he went on the court today. So a, a little bit of his earlier matches and um, you know, for a big guy, he doesn't have a huge serve, but he served smart. And one of the things that was impressive to me was how well, He was able to get the first strike in on clay um, combined with the ability to throw in drop shots and and catch uh, Alcaraz off guard, which is one of the things Alcaraz, as we know, is better than everybody at already. Does a great job with surprise drop shotting. Well, this guy was awesome at it. And then he caught Alcaraz on his heels a few times, changed direction extremely well. I think most importantly for me, just to see him kind of sustain it in big moments where he's up triple break point in the second latter stages and makes kind of three errors in a row that were a little bit nervy. And that's where, you know, my experience would say, uh Oh, this is a chance where maybe he's going to wobble. He hasn't been here. And he did wobble. He didn't break, but then he got into the tie break, got down and never really got flustered. So to me, that's pretty unique um, power off the baseline, great feel and drop shots uh, and the ability Kind of to withstand the moment those are some pretty special attributes and and this guy showed all of them today
0: i think there's been a thing with alcaraz because he's so complete where it's like what what's the plan here like how do you attack him and take advantage of him did that and we've seen him lose only twice uh this year before uh this match and one of them there were some major physical issues towards the end did the, did the whole picture of, oh, these are the scenarios that might happen in order for Alcaraz to lose a tennis match. Did that picture become any clearer in, in your head from this match? Uh, you know, look, I, I
1: don't, I, <laughs> I think when you analyze matches and you look at players and this is why, you know, um, our peers and our good friends and tennis channel teammates and, in Jim Curry or Andy Roddick have said he's the most complete, you know, uh, twenty year old or nineteen year old at the time when they said it, player that we've seen is because there aren't a lot of holes. so so it is really hard to figure out what do you do. Um, if you try to outsolid him, you're at the mercy of his great offensive skills. And a lot of players, I understand a lot, but the great players that we see early stages in careers tend to have a weapon, do something great, um, and have a bunch of holes. He really doesn't have any holes, you know, and that's why, and erotic said it. That's why Jim said it. I agree with it. and in in that you know he's completed. does everything pretty well. That in and of itself makes it really difficult to come up with a game plan. I mean, they guess the best game plan is to figure out, I think, how to get on offense against him early on because he's such a great mover. He has so many offensive skills that if you're just relying on him to miss, well, we've seen him pretty much not miss for a couple of years now. And once in a while, he has a little bit of an off day, but still you're at the mercy of his execution and being so solid. I don't think that's a great place to be. So I still think the question is how do we get on offense first? And can I do it well enough to sustain the opportunity to give myself a chance to win? And, and today uh, Marosian did a great job doing that.
0: And I, th- I certainly think it plays into how center beat him in Miami as well. I mean, this is, you know, huge power and trying to kind of beat him to the punch. So, so that makes a lot of sense to me. Roland Garros implications, I guess mentally for, for Alcaraz, there could be an argument that this could even be a good thing. Hey, we get to, we get to rest a little bit now. Do you, do you see it that way? And do you think that's how his team tries to spin it?
1: Yeah. Look, I think he's got a great coach and Juan Carlos Ferrero, who's been number one in the world knows all the little um, idiosyncrasies that, come around and also knows all the traits that um are necessary to win majors and and i i actually you know i actually wouldn't even try to i don't think the word spin i i don't look at it like you need to spin it because i think it's a good thing i mean he won in madrid um didn't have a huge amount of time to turn around he's played plenty of tennis uh he's a young guy that's had a couple injury question marks already in his career I don't think it's a terrible thing. Look, no players want to lose. <laughs> you know, all, all players want to win, and they try to periodize or prioritize the biggest event. So you don't want to lose here. But to me, I would feel very comfortable and not even have to spin it, because I actually would say tough match, rough day at the office. You didn't do anything terrible. There's nothing really to worry about. Let's take a couple days, get a breather, get the body fresh and then get a a nice week of preparation. So I actually do think it should be fine for him. doesn't create any question marks for me. And I don't think, you know, if he doesn't win the French open, I will not be one that says, see, I knew what happened. As soon as he lost at Rome, that was it. I don't think it has that kind of a bearing.
0: Paul, awesome of you to uh, jump on with me on short notice. Uh, Really appreciate it.
1: Gil, thanks so much. And sorry, it was short notice. And, um, hopefully one of these days you'll send me that invite and we can have a nice lengthy philosophical chat about all things tennis, huh? Let's,
0: let's do that. I mean, the podcast is like usually 30, 45 minutes. That would be incredible. Sounds So yeah, let's good to do me. it. All right, let's
1: do it. Thanks, my friend.
0: Thanks. Rewatching the match. And when I first talked to Paul, I, I actually hadn't seen most of the match, which also kind of limited what I was able to talk about with him. But when you have a stunner like this, I think the first thing or one of the things you look at is okay was the favorite was the guy who was supposed to win was was he checked out was he was he gone did he mail this in did he not kind of respect uh his opponent out there or any any of that stuff right it's one of the first things you look at and paul was saying you know he felt like alcaraz didn't do anything particularly poorly in this match I just want to highlight the one part of that attitude. Alcaraz had a good attitude today. He did. He was vamosing in the first game of the second set over and over again, like every point he won, which is kind of a good indication there. After losing the first set, he was just like, all right, time to get down to business. Let's not lose this match. And he starts getting real emotional, pumping himself up at the start of the second set. He got broken in the second set. I think it was three all. And then... That was the moment where he could have gotten really frustrated, really negative, and kind of been like, all right, like, this stinks. Like, what's going on here? Start slapping balls and losing his discipline, losing his focus. No, didn't do that. He got the boomerang break, played a really good return game from down a set and a break for a moment there in the second. So Alcaraz had a really, really good attitude today. The only thing that looked way below average to me in his game was his neutralization and some moments on the second serve return. Some missed second serve returns and somewhere he was just putting the ball in the middle of the court and not, you know, just, just allowing Mirojan to take control on the plus one off the second serve. A couple of big moments there, including the opening game of the match where Alcaraz probably should have broken serve and he didn't. And maybe that set the tone in ways that became important. So if Alcaraz had a good attitude, didn't do all that much wrong. And by the way, with the neutralization, I just think he made a lot of errors on defense. And it felt like he couldn't really reset a lot of the points today. When he was in big trouble, we're so used to seeing him kind of turn things around, use his legs, use his speed. And in this case, it seemed like the defense was a little bit impatient. And maybe that was some of the intimidation. With, you know, Morozhan redirecting the ball and hitting so big. But I thought there was some impatient defense. And as a result, I just don't think a lot of the balls were coming back in play where maybe they could have. And then even the movement at times didn't look quite as stable and balanced as we're used to seeing. So those were the two things I noticed. Second serve return in moments. And then the defense, I felt, just wasn't really where it usually is. So if Alcaraz's attitude was there... And there weren't all that many parts of his game that were big issues here. What was the magic with Marojan? There was some magic there. Wasn't there. The thing that stood out to me was how unafraid he was. And how committed he was to either winning or losing on his racket. He was relentlessly offensive. Relentlessly. And how many guys who are massive underdogs come out in matches against some of the you know the best in the world in matches they're not supposed to win and they might kind of take that almost semi reckless fearless at the very least approach in the beginning because they know they're going to have to play a little bit better they might have to redline their game and they're going after the, they're they're going after it and kind of attacking the task at hand with a certain level of of fearlessness until it starts working, and then they get a lead, and then that fearlessness completely goes away. We we see that all the time. And Mirojan just, he was the same guy in the first game that he was in the last game. One of the craziest things about Morojan and the offensive Tennessee was playing was he can't even really serve all that big. That's another thing that that really impressed me because it's one thing when you have a huge serve and you get really, really hot with your serve, that's the easiest way to take the racket out of someone's hands. And with the players who we talk about, we use that term all the time, take it out, take the racket out of your opponent's hands. 80, 90% of the guys who we describe that way have massive serves and they're going to rack up aces and unreturnables. Morojan isn't even that guy and he was still able to do it. How impressive is that? The biggest thing that that stood out to me with the the skill that was on display with him was the timing. Amazing timing, uh, and and the touch and the touch on the drop shot. We'll get to that in more detail. Uh, but he got so many returns to the backhand, even first serve returns. That was a huge thing. I think that it is a good thing if you're if you find yourself rewatching the match. It's something that if you're not focused on. Very easy to miss. But how many balls, how many returns were successfully finding the Alcaraz backhand? And when they weren't finding the Alcaraz backhand, was Alcaraz going for these kind of ambitious and difficult runarounds where he was almost rushing himself because he was trying to make a forehand out of an incoming ball that wasn't very easy to make into a forehand? And there were a couple of times, including the biggest point of the tiebreak, the biggest mistake that Alcaraz made in the tiebreak, and I saw it more than once, where I think he was trying to run around the ball on the plus one, and he didn't really have enough time to get around it completely. And he switched to the drop shot, the kind of inside-out drop shot, and missed it. And look, he wasn't just massaging balls into Alcaraz's backhand corner on return. He was taking it early, And he was taking full swings and he was hitting the ball hard. I mean, it was a very aggressive return strategy that was going to make it difficult for, for Alcaraz to really have any comfort on being offensive with plus one. I thought in the second set, Alcaraz started to get some free points with his serve. But for the most part, Alcaraz's serve was not good enough to really make that aggressive approach from morojan uh, backfire. There were so many returns going to the backhand in the first set where I was getting ready to question why Alcaraz wasn't looking to do a little bit more on his first serve because he, he made like 80% first serves in in the first set, yet the first serve wasn't doing all that much damage and it wasn't setting up the plus one in the way that Alcaraz needs it to. And whenever that happens, I kind of look to, okay, well, maybe you should actually be missing more first serves and going for more. It turned out that's a really hard argument to make because Alcaraz was not successful at all with his second serve in this match. So how could I how could I sit here and say, well, he should have missed more first serves, gone after the first serve more if... At the end of the match, he was 9 for 23, 39% winning behind his second serve. And then, you know, there was also just a lot of wow forehands. And I guess the the two mini breaks in the, in the tie break, one of them I've already talked about, which was the inside-out forehand drop shot in the net. That was the first mini break. The second mini break was this inside-in, fade-away forehand that Mirojan hit that was just absolutely out of this world. A ball that, when I saw the shot that Alcaraz hit and the shot that Mirojan was setting up for, I thought there was zero chance that there was going to be a winner on the next ball. Zero chance. I didn't even think there was necessarily going to be a damaging shot by Mirojan on its way. And he hit a stone-cold winner. So, wow factor. Great timing. Great commitment to aggression. Not afraid. I would like to talk about uh, the Alcaraz deep return position. And I think a lot of its drawbacks came out in this match. If, If you haven't been kind of consuming any of my stuff uh then I, I do want to say this. I've loved the Alcaraz deep return position all throughout clay court season. And it's something that I don't think was really in his arsenal last year. And last year, especially on clay, one of my criticisms of Alcaraz was I felt he he did miss a lot of returns, especially on breakpoint opportunities in big spots where I felt like, okay, you want to definitely, if you can, make this return in play. I thought he missed a lot of returns in, in 2022. And this clay court season, he has moved back. He has taken a cue from Nadal. He has taken a cue from Tsitsipas, taken a cue from Medvedev to an extent. You know, you see a lot of the best players in the world doing this. And Alcaraz has all of the skill sets that would... Uh, make it make sense to do that. Speed, weight of shot. All, all of these things are requirements if, you, if you're going to play the deeper return position. And Alcaraz has those things. And all throughout Madrid, Carlitos played a bunch of really big servers. Struf, Zverev, Hachinov, Chorich. And against all of these really big servers... I thought Alcaraz's deep return position was working wonders. He was not making it easy for them. He was making returns back in play and using his speed and his defense to put pressure on those servers to make a play behind their serve and to get it through Alcaraz's defense. Even even Struff serve and volleying, Alcaraz still stuck with that. And I think it's been great. But I thought Morojan probably did a better job than anyone I've seen just taking advantage of some of the downsides of the deep return position. And you obviously have to start with uh, the serve plus one drop shots. They were enormous. I didn't do any point by point charting of this match, so I don't know the exact number, but Matt Willis tweeted it. Tweet has since been deleted, so I don't know exactly what it was. I'm pretty sure it was eight of nine Morojan on the serve plus drop shot. Obviously, just watching the match, super obvious it was a big deal. Uh, it actually came up even in the second set tiebreak on, on some really massive points. So, that was that was one way. And by the way, I mean, some of that was return position. Some of that was just a highly unusual level of execution. Because there was a point in time where Alcaraz... Was like, okay, we get it. You're going to drop shot on the plus one a ton. I'm going to be ready for it. And there were a few that I thought Carlitos got a pretty good jump on. And you just can't hit a drop shot any shorter, any better. And it was still a winner. Um, But also another thing that I want to credit Morojan with is he was following it in. Which is so essential, I think when you drop shot Alcaraz, because Alcaraz will re-drop you, and he'll re-drop you well. So, you know, follow it up into the net, and make it so that you take away the re-drop, and if Alcaraz is retrieving the drop shot from a low contact point in tight on the net, it's going to be tough to really get the ball by you. Um, And that's why. You take away the re-drop, which is usually the best option, and now you're left with a bunch of Somewhat poor options. I think it's. I think it's absolutely essential when you're when you're drop shotting against um, most players, but Alcaraz especially. I think you got to follow it in if you can. Um, the other thing is the accurate wide serves were working really really well, and I mentioned earlier that Marojan is not that big a server. But I think he was getting good purchase out of his serve when he could locate the wide serve. He wasn't spamming the wide serve. He was mixing it up. But it felt like to me whenever he did hit a good one, he was winning the point on it. He was winning it almost every time. He was moving Alcaraz way off the court. We know that the deeper you stand in the court, uh, the further off the court the wide serve is going to pull you because the ball just travels further and further away from the the single sideline. You're giving the ball time to travel off the court. And Alcaraz was giving that up, and Morojan was hitting those serves really, really well. And then it goes back to his timing. If he needed to redirect into the open court, he was doing that extremely well. But it was also more space to hit the plus one drop shot into. So Morojan was unbelievably efficient. Off of his plus one ball, in part because he was mixing the drop shot in so well, in part because he was locating the wide serve extremely well, and in part uh, because he was redirecting when he when he was driving. He had enough power uh, where Alcaraz could not completely sit on the drop shot because he could blow you off the court with an aggressive drive forehand. Or even a backhand. Alcaraz' conclusion, you know, I've talked a lot about the center match in Miami and how essential it was uh, that that center was able to suffocate him with speed of ground stroke and taking time away, and just just rushing him and being intimidating off of both the forehand and the backhand with the baseline power, right? And how Struff did a lot of things, you know, well in, in the Madrid final to, to make some of the same things happen, almost in, a, in just in a different way, right? And Paul Lanicone said, yeah, you have to find ways to be offensive against Alcaraz. When I asked him, is there kind of a blueprint here against, as complete a player we've ever seen, is there a, a, a best way to play him? And it's this, and... I think one of the aspects of this that I would have loved to get a little bit more deep with with Paul, but I think one of the major things with this is once again, how do you make Alcaraz play worse? It's not about it's not always about how am I going to win points on my terms, but also how do we extract mistakes? And different players have kind of different buttons you can poke here. But I still think with Alcaraz, it's how do you make him feel like a passenger? If you make him feel like a passenger, that is when he starts to feel a little bit desperate because he simply doesn't like it. He does not like feeling that way. He likes the control. He likes the outcomes dictated by him on his racket. And when he feels like that's not happening, he is still he can still get a little bit undisciplined and he can still get a little bit anxious and I think a little bit frustrated. And that's where you might start to see the unforced errors that you otherwise would not see. That first ball drop shot in the tie break, for example, where he feels like he needs to make something happen right away. All of those kind of defensive shots that I think normally he can loop back into the court and start to get back into the point, but just going for a little bit extra in this match and not making the ball. How do you earn that against Alcaraz? I think you have to be super fearless and bring a wide array of aggression in a lot of different ways. Fabian Mirojan did it. I'm not going to get into the Roland Garros stuff right now. Um, We'll have plenty of time to talk about that in the future. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.